you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to our text for this morning. It's Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joint to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Let's pray together. When we were in the flesh, Father, that is, when we were just plain, ordinary humans without the Holy Spirit, without grace, without faith, our sinful passions prostituted the holy law of God and made it an instrument to defeat its own demands. And thus we showed ourselves to be exceedingly sinful. Father, I pray that we would sense the weight of sin this morning, that there's a reality in the world that is mammoth beyond human description. It's the cause of all suffering in the universe. It's the cause of infinite wrath from you. It's the cause of the creation of hell. It's the ruination of marriages. And it's called sin. Lord, acquaint us with the weight of this malady in our lives. Don't let us take lightly our condition. Help us to feel the appropriate seriousness of our own rebelliousness and insubordination. And grant, I pray, that seeing ourselves for who we are, the cross of Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the intercession for us by Christ in heaven, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of Christ, the church of Christ, the word of Christ, would appear to us for what it really is of infinite value beyond all human treasure. Lord, come and perform these spiritual awakenings in our lives, I pray. Help me to speak the truth. Help me to speak it in a balanced way. Help me to speak it with affections that are fitting for the nature of what I speak. 
And so work a saving, strengthening, unifying, healing, encouraging, humbling, empowering, emboldening work here now in these next few minutes. Through Christ I pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul is absolutely passionate about your being known as a Christ-like, Christ-exalting, loving person. Your being a loving person is his passion. Loving your enemies loving your friends, loving Christians and non-Christians, loving people of other races, loving the unreached people, groups of the world, loving the people at work that are so hard to get along with. Paul's passion is that the church of Jesus Christ, Christians be known for their Christ-like, Christ-exalting love of enemy and friend. And therefore, he is also equally passionate about your dying to the law. Now, you may not compute with that at all. The first one you might say, well, yeah, that'd be a good idea, that'd be a good thing. If I and others were that way, loving people, kind people, patient people, merciful people, that'd be a good thing. I would like to see that happen. But what in the world do you mean when you say he is equally passionate? That for the sake of love, we die to the law. What in the world is that? That's what I want to talk about for these two Sundays, today and next Sunday. I want to ask questions like this. What is the law that we're to die to? What role does this law have in relation to sin, the flesh, and in relation to love? Does it have any role in relation to justification? How about sanctification? The law involved with sanctification? When we die to the law... Does it have any subsequent bearing on us? Does it have any authority or any usefulness in our lives if we die to it? So we start this today and lay foundations, especially from verse 5. And then next Sunday I hope to move towards the really practical outworking of how do you live a life of love? How do you pursue love if you're dead to the law and not seeking help from the law to do that. Knowing that the law is fulfilled in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You must die to the law that commands you to love your neighbor if you would love your neighbor. Now, as we got to figure that out, we got to figure that out. So, if my first question is this: Why do I say with such vehemence that for Paul, 
The passion of his life is that his churches and our church and all Christians would be known for their love. Why do I say that? I say it because at the end of verse 4, Romans 7, 4, the aim of life, the aim of Christianity, the aim of redemption is this. These words at the end of that verse. In order that we might bear fruit for God. That's the aim of life. To bear fruit for God. And my five-year-old would answer the question, Talitha, what's the main fruit for God? What's the fruit? And she'd say, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, meekness, faithfulness, self-control. Love. Love is the fruit of the Spirit. But the question you might have is, even though Galatians 5.22 does say that, the fruit of the Spirit is love, how do you know that's what Paul has in mind in verse 4? Here's the reason. In verse 6, the same thought we've seen now for two Sundays ends... With these words, instead of saying, so that we might bear fruit for God, he says, so that we might serve in the newness of the Spirit and not the oldness of the letter. So now we have the Holy Spirit involved in this goal of Paul. He said, I want something to happen in your life so that you will bear fruit for God, or, to put it another way, verse 6, I want something to happen in your life so that you will serve in the newness of the Spirit. So now we got fruit there and Spirit here. That's a strong pointer to Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love. But let's do this. Unless you have any remaining doubt that love is Paul's passion here. Let's go to Galatians. If you want to look at it with me, you can, or you can just listen. Uh, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians. Third book over from where we are right now in the New Testament. And let's go to chapter 5 of Galatians. And watch Paul unfold the same kind of thought. Only here he makes love explicit in relationship to our freedom from the law. Galatians 5.1, Paul says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. He's talking about freedom from the laws, a means of justification. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now, down in verse 13, he relates that freedom to love. He says... Galatians 5.13 For you were called to freedom, just like it says back in Romans 7, you are released from the law so that you might bear fruit for God. Now he says, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. That's exactly like Romans 6.14 where he says, don't say because I'm not under law, therefore we can sin. Because we're not under law but under grace. Here he's saying, don't say because you're free and not under law. Therefore, just let the flesh have free reign. But, here's his alternative, freedom is that 
through love you would serve one another. Notice the word serve linking up with Romans 7, 6. And now we've got all the pieces together. We've got fruit unto God. We've got serving in the Spirit. We've got freedom from the law. We've got death to the law. And here it's made explicit that the goal of that is love, love, serve one another. You free? Are you free? Show me you're free instead of in bondage to your flesh. Show me you're free. The freest people in all the world are the most sacrificial, lay down your life loving people and don't have to be in bondage to all the same junk that the world is in bondage to to surround themselves with comforts and ease. The free people are loving people. But he even does more. Verse 18 of Galatians 5. If you are led by the Spirit... You're not under law. Now, there you see what he's saying. Same thing as in Romans 7. Being led by the Spirit. You're not under law. So not being under law, the alternative way to live is by the Spirit. And then you get to chapter or verse 22 and he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then interestingly, at the end of that list, verse 23, he says, after he lists the nine fruit of the Holy Spirit, he says, against such things... There is no law. You live by the Spirit, the law will never be against you. You don't even need the law. Now let's go back. That's my answer to my first question. Why is Paul, why do I say that Paul is so passionate about your being loving people? It's because the goal of verse 4, fruit unto God, and the goal of verse 6, serving in the newness of the Spirit, really means the fruit of love and the service of love. That's what he wants. He wants this church to be a loving church. Love your enemies. Love people like you. Love people unlike you. Love the easy. Love the hard. Bear that kind of fruit. Do that kind of service in the Spirit. That's my answer to question 1. Here's my next question. Why did I say, therefore, to that end, he is equally passionate that we die to the law? Why did I say that? Well, just because the structure of verse 4 and the structure of verse 6. Notice that dying to the law is the means to love in both verses. Verse 4, therefore, my brethren, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. In other words, when you trusted him, you became united with him, you died with him, you died to the law, so that you might be joined to another, namely to him who's raised from the dead, in order that you might bear fruit for God, that is, love. You died to the law so that you could love. You can't love if you don't die to the law. Though, if you care about being a loving person, you've got to care about the issue of dying to the law. That's why he's passionate about this. Or, look at verse 6, same structure. Now we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound. Why? So that we would serve in the newness of the Spirit. You can't serve in the newness of the Spirit until you die to the law. And you can't love unless you're serving in the newness of the Spirit. Love is the fruit of the Spirit. When you serve in the newness of the Spirit, not the oldness of the letter, the law, then you will love. And love is his goal, therefore he hates not being dead to the law. We must die to the law if we would love. We as a church must learn what it is, 
in our heads and in our hearts to experience death. Only dead people love. Only dead people to the law love. So that's my answer to those two questions and why I said he's passionate about love and he's passionate about death to the law. Now the question is, why must we die to the law in order to love? Why does loving depend on dying to the law? How how does that work? It's not computer. It's not making sense to me completely why that is. So help. Verse 5 is where we're going to settle in. And think about this. Verse 5 begins the explanation or the answer to that question like this. It's because, in other words, you have to die to the law if you're going to be a loving person. Because until you are united with Christ in death, you don't have the Holy Spirit And you are merely flesh. See that word flesh at the beginning there, verse 5? When we were in the flesh. Now, what is that? When we were in the flesh, we bore fruit for death, not fruit for God. We didn't love when we were in the flesh. What's the flesh? The flesh, you can see this in various places in Paul, even back a few verses in chapter 6, where it's just... Simple human nature. Fallen, unredeemed human nature, minus the Holy Spirit, minus grace. What we are by birth, first birth. That's flesh. Human nature. And the key question is, what becomes of the law when it meets the flesh? The good, holy, just law of God, what becomes of it when it meets this? And you know what his answer is? It becomes an instrument to defeat its own demands. When law meets flesh, It rouses, see that word in the middle of verse 5, sinful passions to bear fruit for death. Sin unscrupulously conspires with this pure thing and prostitutes her to bear fruit to death. The law in the hands of the flesh becomes the instrument to defeat the demands of the law. Why? 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 you got to die to this. You, old person, flesh, have to die 
We read that verse now in whole. For while we were in the flesh, that is mere fallen, unredeemed human nature, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Not love, death. So Paul says, you've got to die to the law. You've got to die to the law. Put your whole life on a different footing. Not a letter footing, not a law footing, but a spirit footing. A Christ footing. A whole different approach towards love. A whole different approach towards making the marriage work. A whole different approach towards parenting. A whole different approach towards getting along at the office. A whole different approach towards teaching school or being a student. you got to get your whole life on a different footing than law. Because if you don't die to the law, you will turn the law into the instrument of defeating its own demands. Why? Can, can we figure this out? Can we get into the head of Paul here and say, what? How does this work? Why does flesh do that? How does flesh do that? What is it about the flesh that makes that happen? And we can. Paul gives us a lot of help here. So what we want to do now is figure out what it is about flesh that is so unscrupulously abusive of the law that it has the power to take the holy, good, righteous law of God and turn it into the instrument of lawlessness. How does that happen? Now, to answer that question, we're going to go to chapter 8, verses 7 to 9, because this is the place where we get a, a huge window onto the meaning of flesh and who we are. So it's very personal to me right now, and it ought to be personal to you, because I know there's enough of this left in me, new creature though I am in Christ, there's enough of this old stuff left in me that I see John Piper writ large in these verses. And what I was before I had grace I had the Spirit to fight for me and in me, to transform me. That I see devastatingly clear here. So, who are you? Let's read verses 7 to 9. What is the flesh? Because remember now, verse 5 says, It was when we were in the flesh that the law got treated this way. And that's what's got to die. Alright? Verse 7, Romans 8. The mind set on the flesh, the mind of the flesh, literally, is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. For those who are in the flesh, there's our phrase, in the flesh, when you were in the flesh, Romans 7, 5. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So watch out when the flesh gets a hold of the law. Verse 9. However, you, he's talking to Christians, I hope most of you, you are not in the flesh. What's the opposite then? 
You are in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. That is a very important passage of Scripture. It divides humanity into two groups. In the flesh, in the spirit. Not belonging to Jesus, belonging to Jesus. Not indwelt by the spirit, indwelt by the spirit. There are two groups of humans in the world. Those two kinds. That's the biggest and most important division in the universe. Besides the one between us and God. Four things it says about this group over here. The in the flesh group. Number one. Verse seven at the beginning. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. That's the first mark of the flesh. It hates God. The second thing it says about the flesh is in the middle of verse seven is it does not subject itself to the law of God. It's insubordinate. It's rebellious. The third thing it says about the flesh at the end of verse 7 is it's not even able to submit itself to the law of God. Our corruption, apart from sovereign divine grace, is so deep and the roots of our rebellion go down so low, we can't submit to the law of God. It has become morally impossible, though we are responsible to submit. We're so bad, we can't be good. We need a redeemer. We need a rescue, big time. Fourth thing it says about the flesh, verse 8, those who are in the flesh, therefore, cannot please God. But, brothers and sisters, you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit. Now let's think about this for a minute. Let's make some summary statements from what we've just seen about the essence of our nature. Apart from grace, apart from the Spirit. What's the essential problem with John Piper and you? What's the, the nub of sin? What is sin? Here are my efforts to put it in a few paraphrases. The essence of my condition apart from Christ is not first and mainly that I break specific laws of God. That's way down the river. That I break specific laws of God is not my main problem. My main problem is that I am hostile to God. That I do not want to submit to God. The essence of my sinful condition is the unwillingness to be told what to do. I don't want to be told where to find happiness. I don't want to be told this choice will ruin my life, that choice will make my life. I will not be told what to do. I will tell me what to do. 
This is the beginning of sin in the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve, don't eat that tree, eat this tree. This is bad for you, it will kill you. These are good for you, I love you, I'm your father, I know it's good for you, trust me. No! No, she said, and he said, I will eat what I want to eat, and there's sin. I will trust me. I will be my own God. Thank you. Anyway, the essence of sin is a passion for self-rule. Before there's any rule on the scene. My essential problem is not that I break laws. My essential problem is that I hate laws. And I hate them before they even appear. And as long as they don't appear, my hatred lies dormant. Which is why there's so many good people in the world. Good people. Good people. I told the kids in the first service, there aren't as many in this service, I want to teach them a new word. Some adults as well, maybe. I know the word essence is a big word for kids, so let's say main thing. The main thing or the essence of sin or the sinful nature is self-deification. You know that word? Deification means I will make myself God. I will be God. I will deify. I will make myself a deity. Self-deification. That's the essence of sin. The passion to be our own God. That's what in the flesh means. So sin is not first law-breaking, it's law-hating. And even before there was law-hating, there was self-rule-loving. I love to rule myself. Being in the flesh means I will not be told what to do. I will go my own way and do my own thing. And you don't have to look very far to see this. I mean, I see it in the world. I see it in my family and my children and my wife. But most of all, I see it in me. And there's where it bites. I saw it yesterday. I told the group, I told the group that I was lecturing to yesterday. I told them about it. I won't tell you the details. But I, I see it. Virtually every day, I've got a plan. I'm doing something here. And here comes a, a cross will, another will. Bible, God, wife, child, friend, colleague, you name it, doesn't matter. Another will besides my will, crossing my will. How, you feel good about those times? You say... Oh, yes, by all means, because I'm so fallible and I, there's nothing I'd like more than to consider your will at this point and submit mine to yours because I am meek and humble and lowly in heart. And... <laughs> no way. Everything in me, well, not everything now that I'm born again, but a lot of old junk in me bristles. Happens between spouses a lot. Don't tell me. I know. I'm doing it my way.
we are very corrupt. We, we hardly ever articulate it this way to ourselves that we're hostile to God. And most people, you tell them they're hostile to God, they say, you're crazy. I'm not hostile to God. I don't even think about God. <laughs> but let them be crossed by God's will. Flee fornication. Don't be enslaved by anything. Bless those who curse you. Then the sediment of hostility, which can lie pretty low. There. We are hostile to God. We want to be God. We don't want to submit to God. Submission to God does not come natural for any human being since the fall. Except one, Jesus, who always did what his father commanded. It was his meat, he said. He loved to eat submission. So let's take an example to try to figure out how this works. I think you all know it from your own experience. Why is it that the books that were required during the semester, the novels in the literature class, you didn't want to read, and after the class was over, you wanted to read them? Why is that? There's something really significant about that. Why is it that the most, the most common three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old response to don't, and before you can finish the sentence, out of the mouth comes, but I want. Why is but I want a response to thou shalt? It's taken us a long time with this little girl. <laughs> to, to train her. See, God has to do the decisive work here. But we have a parental job to teach this little girl, but I want is not a suitable response to thou shalt. When a policeman says thou shalt, when an employer says thou shalt, when the Bible says thou shalt, when God says thou shalt, and when a parent says thou shalt not sit backward on the bench, or thou shalt not... whatever. An appropriate response is, but I want. And you know what's going on there. I'm God here. She's born as a little God. And everything in her says... You don't cross my will. I'm God. I have wants. I do what I want. And you must teach children, no. You will be spanked if you do what you want here. And if you continue to the end of your life, you'll go to hell, which is why we spank lovingly. If kids don't learn the meaning of the wrath of God and the love of God from their parents who love them, where are they going to learn it? Somebody try later on to convince them that a loving God is also a wrathful God. If they haven't seen that in daddy, that daddy can hug and kiss and roll around the floor and be sweet and pure and kind and gentle and really have fire in his eyes when he disobey. If you, if, if a kid can't put that together in a parent, how's he going to put together in God? Let's take an example here, not from a kid. We all know those stories. Suppose you're a person, an adult person, a, a person outside Christ, a person without the Holy Spirit, and 
You're a very unflappable, easygoing, thick-skinned, peace-loving people-pleaser who has a remarkable gift for smoothing over conflict situations. And everybody likes to have you around because you just make life a little easier. When somebody says something that puts everybody on the edge, you just know exactly the right thing to say. It kind of smooths over, just drops, goes away, and you can get through the meeting or, or whatever. And so it looks like you're, you're really quite a you know, blessing to humanity. And, and then along comes a law. Say a law like, bless those who persecute you or bless those who curse you. And as long as you were calling the shots... Able to say what you wanted to say, when you wanted to say it, to the people you want to say it, and to nobody else. You, you sound real unflappable, you sound real peacemaking, you sound real easygoing. But now here comes an absolute law into your head. Bless those who curse you. And off the sediment of that peaceful life comes resistance and rebellion. Don't tell me whom to bless. I will choose. I know how to use this mouth to do things in the world. And as long as I'm God, as long as I'm in control, as long as I'm calling the shots, then I can sort of bless people. But you tell me to bless everybody who curses me, and in this particular situation, maybe I don't think I want to, then that unflappable person suddenly becomes unloving. How'd that happen? The law, which was designed to produce blessing in the hands of the flesh, kills blessing. This kills it. It won't happen. It's not going to happen because of our deep-seated rebellion. So back to verse 5. While we were in the flesh... That is, while we loved being God and hated being told what to do, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death, not to bear fruit for love. And so Paul says, for love's sake, die to the law. Galatians 5.24 Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its desires. You gotta die. The flesh that takes the law like that must die for love's sake. So next week what I want to do is ask the question, Okay, right at this practical point, we just laid foundations now, right at this practical point, how do I live my life to become a more loving person? If I see failures in my life, what do I do? Do I look to the law? I mean, after I've died to the law in that flesh, is the new me who lives to find love in the law? And my advanced answer is no. Life is on a totally new footing, even for the new person in Christ, not just the one who must die. So let me close with these three applications of just today's foundation. One, 
Let's know ourselves. Please, please don't resist this right now, trying to, to protect a fragile self or a fragile ego. Just, just own your corruption. I was born again 40... Oh, my math is just awful. Whatever 55 minus 6 is, that many years ago. And all those years, I have known Christ. And today, the chiefest of all evidences of the truth of this passage is the mirror in my house. Not you. Not any wretch on the street. Not any person on television. Not any politician. But me. I know me pretty well. I'm sure I don't know me as well as I should. And I know nobody in this room knows ourselves as well as we should. There are folds of corruption in our hearts we've never seen. If they could be pulled apart, they'd stink. If pulled apart, they'd stink. We don't know ourselves. But to the degree that God is speaking this morning through this text about the nature of the flesh and what we are apart from Christ, own it. Just own it and humble yourself under it. And then, second application, reckon yourself dead to sin and law. We've been teaching for these years now that when we believe in Jesus, and anybody can do that right now, believe in Jesus, you get united to Him when you trust Him, and in union with Him you die when He died. His death becomes your death, and His death was death to the law, and yours now is death to the law. And therefore what you're to do is become in reality what you are in Christ. Become in practice what you are in Him. You already have died to the law. Now live it out. Live out your death to the law and your life to God. That's the second application. And the third application is this, and I close. On the path of love where all believers are right now, as God has come into you, Christ is in you, the Holy Spirit is in you, the fruit is being born. You may say, not much. That's right, it's not much for all of us. But you're on the path. You've got the right direction, even if you don't have perfection. And you're on the path. And what? You, and you stumble. You say something, that wasn't loving. You give a look to your kid or your wife. That wasn't loving. You walk out of a room when you should have stayed in the room. That wasn't loving. Now what do you do? To fix that. To grow in that. So you do that bad thing less often. What do you do? Do you look to the law because the law says love your neighbor as you love yourself? No! That's next week's sermon. That loud no? That's next week's sermon. Well, where do you look? We... Serve in the newness of the spirit, not the oldness of the letter. So I want to talk about that next week. We look toward Christ. Verse 4 says, you died to the law, to that which held you fast, so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. The solution to your lovelessness is not law, but Christ.
The risen, living, glorious, indwelling, all-loving, all-forgiving, all-empowering Christ. You look to a living person, not a book. Lots of questions come to your mind, don't they? See you next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I beg of you, come, come and do this text. I want to be a more loving pastor, a more loving husband, a more loving father, a more loving neighbor, more loving citizen, a more loving missions mobilizer for the unreached perishing peoples. And I know this voice of mine right now echoes the heart of almost everybody in this room. And so, Lord, we ask you corporately, come and make us that way, I pray.